Hello, and welcome to The Pick. This is the movie podcast where every week one of us picks a movie, we talk about it, and at the end of the episode, someone else picks the next one. It's low concept, high fun. It's all about the rules. That's right. I'm actually Sean. It wasn't Christopher Walken. That's the power of the pick. Fuck. Thought we landed a good guest guest spot. (laughs) Do you guys know that Tom Skerritt lives in Seattle? We could have got him on this. (laughs) Yeah, I knew that for some reason. (laughs) I think he had like an acting school or something in Seattle Mm. at some point. He is one of our finest. Sure. This uh, is the pick. We are Sean Lemmy, John Notney, Colin Westman. <laughs> Had to put an uh, effort was, in there. Yeah, I was really hoping we wouldn't uh, be forcing each other to do lots of Christopher Walken impressions, uh, but it, it'll probably happen anyways. But I just the ice is gonna break. Yeah, <laughs> good shit. But I ca- I cannot do a Christopher Walken impression to. To save my life. When um, I when I tried I try my to, best there. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> when I try to do it, it sounds like Christopher Walken is like turning into Arnold Schwarzenegger, like <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde style. <laughs> that's that's the best Christopher Walken when he's like taking it up a notch. <laughs> um, <we're> talk- <laughs> Sorry, I'm just making noises now. <laughs> We're, um, he was a respectable actor once. We're talking about um, The Dead Zone this week, which is uh, a 1983 uh, David Cronenberg movie that stars Christopher Walken. That's why uh, we bring him up. But uh, we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because before we get to do the big pick, we have to get through little picks. Um, and I guess I start because it was my pick this week. So I'll just do a quick one. I want to make sure everybody knows there's a new Fleet Foxes album that came out. Uh, It came out a few weeks ago because, of course, they had to put it out on exactly the autumnal equinox uh, (laughs) because they're Fleet Foxes. Um, But uh, I have been really enjoying Shore, uh, which is their fourth album. Uh, it seems like their third album because I don't remember anything about Crack Up anymore, except that it came out in 2017. Um, and, and I'd say for me, this is it's right up there with the, those first two albums for me. Uh, probably I would probably I imagine still prefer the first one, but I've uh, really been enjoying this uh, this new album, and uh, and I respect the uh, the hustle that it went into making it. it sounds like uh, Robin Pecknold. Uh, kind of stepped up and wanted to to do this. So even though COVID happened, he was still writing this the lyrics and performing a lot of the instruments himself and just putting this thing together and trying to make a 
a brighter, happier uh, album to kind of warm up our dark world. And, uh, and I think that comes through in the music. So it's good. You guys heard it yet? Yeah. Uh, I also really like it, which I was a little surprised by, I guess, because there was that big gap between their second album and crack up it was like six Mm -hmm. years and then crack up came out and i listened to it a couple times and i just couldn't really get into it so i kind of just had the feeling that maybe i'm done with fleet foxes now Mm uh but then this album came out uh pretty pretty quickly after their last one and uh yeah i really like it very warm very big uh definitely the kind of sound you want out of them uh yeah it's pretty great i like both this and the crack up about the (laughs) same can you guys tell me what is it about the crack up that isn't as good as this i'm just like i to me they sound like the same thing like i don't see the differences uh i i maybe maybe it's a timing thing maybe i was i had more spirit back in 2017 (laughs) Uh, and then, and, and I'm so broken now that this, this warms my, my bones more. Um, but yeah, I like, I, the, the, the difference I can tell you is that crack up just did not make an impression on me. And this one I've listened to a lot in the, uh, like couple weeks that's been out. Yeah. I feel like crack up had like longer songs, a little more unconventional, uh, song structures. Um, well, I did go back and re-listen to it um, a week or two ago, and I, I think it is better than I think I gave it credit for. It, it may have also been a timing thing. I guess we just weren't in the mood for a Fleet Foxes record. In I mean, I don't know. You, you guys know. mentioned that. You guys mentioned that gap. I mean, when you have that long of a gap, and then you get the crack up, which is like kind of a challenging album. Yeah, it's probably going to be a letdown. Yeah, I think you kind of do want more of an album that's like <laughs> a more familiar sound from a band you like after it's been that long. So maybe that that did have something to do with it. It's a good good timing. Shall I go next? Sure. I'm going to go ahead and recommend uh, Tales from the Crypt. I've been talking about it all <laughs> week. I got the first yeah. two seasons on DVD. And honestly, like, I feel like this show would still be really popular if it was anywhere to watch. That's the problem. I had to get these DVDs. They're made, like, 2007. They're not great mm. transfers. They're Except what I do like is the menus have, like, a robot, like, uh, like an animatronic of the Crypt Keeper, like, talking about the show and the, the menus. Like, press the, press scream, you know, stuff like that. Uh, except the animatronic is really bad, but it's really funny. Um, but no, this show is so good. It's crazy that this show came out when it did. You know, nineteen eighty nine. This like, like it's like watching a movie like every week. It's such high quality, such high production value. Um, just the talent they had on that show, like Walter Hill and Zemeckis and Richard Donner, and then like the guest stars, like. Tom Hanks, Joe Pesci's in an episode. How good is that? Whoa. Man? Okay, Joe Pesci is in an episode where he's dating twins and he's trying to convince them that he's two different people, but then they find out <laughs> and they like chop them in half. 
<laughs> How good is that? That sounds it's pretty just, good. It's just a f- really fun show, really well made. Uh, I just wish it was like anywhere on streaming and that we had maybe like a Blu-ray release of the show. Uh, I know it's in some sort of rights uh, uh, situation. Like, it was on HBO, but then I remember watching it in syndication on Fox, and then the DVDs were put out by Warner Brothers, so I don't know who owns that show. Seems like multiple people own parts of it. So Hopefully they'll sort that out someday, because it's great for the spooky season. Um, and you can pick up the DVDs for relatively affordable prices, you know, 20-something bucks a season. So, not bad. Check it out. Boils and ghouls. All right. Well, uh, since, uh, you know, politics is on our mind a lot and will be talked about a little bit in regards to the movie uh, we're discussing, I figured I would recommend a show that I finished watching a while ago, but I never had a chance to, I don't know, recommend it or or use it as a little pick. So I'm going with Mrs. America. Uh, This was the FX show that starred uh, Kate Blanchett and a bunch of other pretty famous actresses uh, in this series that's kind of about the 70s uh, women's lib uh, feminist movement and more specifically um, how a lot of uh, prominent uh, feminists were trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment approved and then uh, conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly played by Kate Blanchett, uh, was trying to strike it down and keep it from passing and making it so that women uh, were basically treated as equals uh, under law with a, with a constitutional amendment. And even though it does center kind of on Phyllis Schlafly, like more than any of the other characters, it also goes into like Gloria Steinem and Shirley Chisholm and... Uh, bunch of other sort of big players in the feminist movement that I wasn't super familiar with uh, before watching the show, but it was a nice introduction uh, kind of to that era. Um, and it's uh, like, despite being kind of about politics, it's also pretty fun. <laughs> like it's got a very 70s vibe to it. It definitely indulges like the music and the hair and the fashion and has like a very sort of grainy film look that feels very uh, evocative uh, of that era and uh, it's good uh, I don't know I, I just thought about it kind of when uh, uh, Trump uh, nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court because I was just like oh yeah she's another conservative woman that's kind of working against women's rights like Phyllis Schlafly um, also there's a part at the end in like the last episode which I usually don't like it when movies or TV do things like this but there's like a bunch of people working for Ronald Reagan and they're sort of like teaming up with Phyllis Schlafly and they're like hey I'd like to meet I'd like you to meet these two guys that are working for me their names are Paul Manafort and Roger Stone I'm just like <laughs> okay <laughs> sure it's like how uh, the post at the end was like by the way, let's go check in on the Watergate Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> it's all connected, man. 
Ronald Reagan? The actor? I know. <laughs> Guess he got into politics at some point. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's time to talk about The Dead Zone. Yet another Stephen King adaptation uh, has made its dirty ways into the pick. Um, this one uh, came out in 1979 um, and uh, was like pretty much immediately bought up for the film rights. Looking over the plot synopsis of the book, it sounds like it's the same basic plot beats, uh, but um, there's a bit, there's a kind of a structural change where it sounds like the book is more of like a two parallel stories, uh, one being Johnny Smith, the uh, the psychic detective, and the other being uh, Greg Stilson, the uh, mentally unstable politician um and so it's, it shows uh sort of like parallel moments in their lives over time and instead uh this movie restructured it to be uh more episodic and specifically focused on um johnny's side of the story with uh with stilson only making brief uh sort of cameos uh, in the early parts of the movie and then really coming in in the third act um, they also changed what the dead zone is between the novel and the film, which is maybe interesting, but maybe boring. You guys tell me. Uh, so in the movie, they say the dead zone is like, uh, Johnny's like uncertainty of if that future will, will come to pass or not. Right. Uh, but in the book, the dead zone is literally a part of Johnny's brain uh, that was damaged by the coma. And, uh, and it, it's theorized by him that, uh, that that made the rest, it activated the rest of his brain to, uh, to give him the, the dormant psychic uh, abilities that he always had. So what do you, was it, what do you think was it worth that minute of me explaining that or should I have just no, let, left that one no. in Wikipedia that's perfect we need this it ties into uh, a subplot in the novel uh, which is that uh, Johnny has like a tumor which I guess is not a tumor <laughs> not a tumor God this is <laughs> you can't we can't do too many impressions. We're not good enough at them. We're not Frank Caliendo. Yeah, I'm just going to steer clear of this whole episode, if that's the case. <laughs> so bad of impressions. Um, so, yeah, I told you guys the uh, the film rights were bought out pretty much immediately. They were bought out uh, by uh, Carol Baum, uh, who... Uh, got out of the film business before this movie could even be made. Um, but her big contribution uh, is that she brought in Jeffrey Bohm to do the screenplay. And uh, and it was uh, Jeffrey Bohm's idea to, to do that um, sort of restructuring that I talked about. Um, and uh, and he also wanted to, uh, to team up with the director Stanley Donen to make this movie 
Uh, that's the charade guy. Charade and uh, singing in the rain. Singing in the rain guy. That's a weird choice. It is. <laughs> I don't know what his version of this movie would have looked like. I also don't really know what his career looked like by the 80s. I'm surprised by he's 80s. even directing movies. Although, I feel like he got started directing really young. He was, I think he was maybe in like his mid-20s when he did Singing in the Rain. Wow. Sean, how much did you read anything about Stephen King's script for this movie? Um... His script, the only thing I know about the script is what I read on Wikipedia, which is that his script was needlessly brutal. <laughs> I, got a, I got a little more. There's a great article on Den of Geek that I was checking out. So I believe this is um, Jeffrey Bohm talking, saying, um, no, this is Cronenberg. Uh, Stephen King's own script was terrible. It was not only bad as a script, it was the kind of script that his fans would have been would have torn me apart for doing. It was basically a really <laughs> ugly, unpleasant slasher script. The Castle Rock killer in the middle of the movie becomes the lead, and it was, let's show lots of victims. And then Jeffrey Bohm says that King missed the point of his own book. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds like that book has that dual narrative and is very sprawling. So I could understand, like, when you're trying to focus that into, like, a more conventional narrative, like, kind of get lost in the weeds. It really sounds like Jeffrey Bohm and Cronenberg, and then... Uh, Deborah Hill, producer, who also co-wrote Halloween, they all kind of just sat down and kind of like beat out the plot points and uh, mm-hmm. you know and turned this into something focused. Because it is like a weird. It is kind of interesting how it's like it's like it's like a four-part movie in a way. It's like episodes, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the things I like, kind of like about it. Yeah, yeah. it's cool. Uh, one of the other things that Stephen King brought to this picture were some casting suggestions uh he wanted bill murray to play johnny um and and he had cast hal holbrook as the sheriff character that i like he's old but i like it was he that old in the 80s he probably was he's been old forever you know i guess he i guess he wasn't um, he's probably like he's 50s, older than sixty. Tom. Okay, I'm gonna see. I'm gonna see how much older Hal Holbrook is than Tom Skerritt. Because Hal Holbrook was in like Creep Show in '82, and he was like, he had gray hair, but he's like looking pretty spry. So he's born in 1925. So he's definitely older than Tom Skerritt. I don't think Tom Skerritt's that old. <laughs> uh, God, Tom Skerritt's a so lot older than 50s. I thought he is. Like 58, probably. So uh, Hal Holbrook is only eight years older than Tom Skerritt. And I'm sure you also saw that um, Cronenberg wanted Nicholas Campbell for uh, for Johnny Smith. The lead. I did, but I'm not sure who that is, so I just didn't make a note so of it. So he ended up playing the Castle Rock Killer in the movie. Which is weird, because oh. it's such a small part. I think he'd worked with them, like, two other times. Like, I think Nicholas Campbell has a part in, uh, like the brood and he's in some other Cronenberg movie too. I think he's also in naked lunch, but yeah, I mean, none of us know who he is. <laughs> uh, uh, I should also say that the movie ended up being produced by Dino De Laurentiis, uh, who also made a movie that came out the very next year that we've talked about called Dune. Dune. 
Uh, yeah. He was he was pretty good. That's another uh, you know infamous uh, horror guy stepping out of his comfort zone to make something big and uh, commercial. That's uh, that's a, there's a there's a weird like similarity there where it's like you wouldn't think David Lynch would do a, a sci-fi book adaptation, and you wouldn't think David Cronenberg would would adapt anyone but himself. And, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but do you? Th- I was just thinking about this. Do you think movies like The Dead Zone kind of foreshadowed where Cronenberg's career went in the 2000s? I feel like the movies he made later feel more like The Dead Zone than the movies he's making in the 80s. Like History of Violence and like Eastern Promises and stuff. I don't know. I would just... Yeah. it's And it's so weird because he doesn't stay in this mode at all. He goes like the next movie he makes after this is The Fly. He goes yeah. right back to where he was. Yeah. Well, I would say Dead Ringers is kind of a more of a a slow burning drama than a full on horror movie. That's that's true. So I kind of feel like there was always like that part of Cronenberg where he could do more of like a a more subtle sort of dramatic type of horror movie where you could see how he could you know kind of shift into something that's less horror and more drama because those. Those impulses are always kind of there to to make his spin on the horror movie like a little more adult, a little more classy, I guess, even though he's also got a lot of weird shit in his movies as well. <laughs> Dude, yeah. we gotta get into 90s Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some weird stuff in the 90s. Like, not weird as in, like, gory, just weird as in just weird, like, weird, weird subject movies. matter. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys know about the movie Existence? It has to do yeah, with it's like a VR games, right? video game world yeah. movie with Jude Law. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I was looking it up on our website, Mildly Pleased. We've covered every 80s Cronenberg movie now, which is pretty cool. And we've also covered <laughs> three of his 70s movies and then one in the 2000s. So this is what, like our ninth? We're like experts. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and 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 in that additional context there is that Videodrome was the movie that came out before this which was his first, it was his biggest budget he'd ever had at the time, it was also his, his first box office bomb um, so I can only speculate but it does seem like maybe he was trying to do something a little bit safer, he's a little, maybe per- perhaps a little unsure of his uh, his methods coming off the failure of Videodrome mm-hmm. um, Did Videodrome yeah, come out the same year? Did is that what you said? Uh, it was either very close or like literally the same. Yeah, it looks yeah. like they were both eighty-three. Oh, interesting! That's crazy. I didn't know that. So I mean, maybe it was't him bouncing yeah, back. Maybe, maybe he, he just, just made it exactly after he finished shooting <laughs> video drum. Yeah, Videodrome came But this out definitely, I mean, Videodrome was very much like a niche movie. That definitely feels like him being like, hey, I can do other stuff too. I don't have to just do my weird stuff that, you know, <laughs> not a lot of people see. And I think this movie was, like, it wasn't like a hit, but I think The Dead Zone was like a, a modest success. So, though even though I think he went and had some trouble like right after getting like more projects, so I don't know. I, I, I definitely looking back, people like can hold it in like a high regard, but I'm not really sure how much it did for him back then. Um, yeah, and and you guys were talking about um, how some of his later stuff is more like in the in the vein of drama. 
I think it's also just surprising that you you take a book from you know the master of horror, you you team up with the director who's like known for the most grotesque body horror movies anyone makes, and you get a movie that barely seems like it should be called a horror <laughs> <Yeah>. film. <laughs> Do you think that was the right choice? Do you, should they have scaled the the violence up? I mean, it sounds like there was a deliberate choice they made when they were writing it to 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 make it a little safer you know it's tough because i don't know the book well enough to know what i'm missing out on so i don't have any problem with it being low-key and like it still has like everyone talks about the scissors scene like that's the one of the most memorable scenes from this movie even like that has a lot of punch more punch than most movies that are chocked full of gore yeah, and it may have um, more impact because it's at the center of a movie without a lot of violence, and then you have this really <laughs> jarring scene of violence yeah. just right, you have right an actual, in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. You have an actual serial killer as opposed to all these like regular people that make up the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I you know I. I, I We'll see if they ever remake the Dead Zone. I mean, they have that TV show I've never seen, but we'll see if they ever make another movie. Um, I doubt it'll be as good as this one, though, because this one it definitely feels like it's just got like the right touch. It's not getting in its own way. When it seems like it'd be very easy to get lost in this in this story, like Stephen King apparently did in his script of it. <laughs> yeah. So I think scaling it back and like maybe toning down some of. The, I mean, I, there's a few things I've read about like. Greg Stilson um, in the book like beating a dog to death like when he was like a like a teenager or something. It's like I don't really want to see that. Yeah, I'm good with what we have. Yeah, I think it's it would be interesting to see that like the the Greg Stilson through line, but I think it works totally well the way that they do it in uh, in this film. Like didn't it didn't bother me that he's mainly only at the end of the movie. But you brought up the TV show, and I did look some stuff about the TV show that I think is interesting. Oh, okay. Uh, So um, it ran on the USA Network from 2002 to 2007. Uh, It starred uh, Anthony Michael Hall as Johnny and uh, Nicole DeBoer from Star Trek Deep Space Nine as Sarah. Um, They made one change there. They decided to have had uh, Johnny and Sarah been in a... I guess a, a, a relationship further along um, than in the, the book in the movie. She's actually pregnant when Johnny goes into the coma. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he wakes up, she has his son, but she's also married the sheriff. Ooh. So Sheriff Bannerman in this is main cast as Sarah's husband. Oh, okay. I uh, see. Yeah. The other character they promoted to main cast is Bruce, who's Johnny's physical therapist. Remember that guy who has one scene in the movie? He was like, come on, Johnny, you got to work out more. Not really. A very little bit. <laughs> <laughs> He's like so barely in the movie. Uh, it's, mo- it's mostly to give, uh, to give Johnny a reason to have that meeting with Sarah early on in the film. Uh, so you don't even pay attention to him, but apparently they took that character and made him into like uh, Johnny's sidekick. He's like helping him out and doing his physical therapy. Uh, on they do have a like Stilson as a main character as well. He's played by Sean Patrick 
Flannery, the uh, the Boondock Saints guy. Yeah. Um, but none of this matters. What does matter <laughs> is we talked about uh, already that people are bringing up um, the Dead Zone as like a uh, a weird prophecy of uh, Donald Trump. Let me tell you about an episode of the Dead Zone from 2003 <laughs> called Plague. <laughs> oh no. In this episode, Johnny has visions of a deadly virus breaking out in the United States after someone returns from China. <laughs> sure. And he works with the CDC to control its uh, the, control the epidemic from breaking out. And ultimately, the cure they use is chloroquine. Oh my what? god. <laughs> wow. Weird. Just just straight chloroquine though, not the hydroxy. Not hydroxy. Strain. Just chloroquine. Yeah. Still. <laughs> but it, they they literally use words like coronavirus <laughs> and chloroquine back in 2003. Wow. Um and and the guest actor who's delivering a lot of this exposition is Steven Toblowski, by the way. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> But Stilson doesn't get it. Um, I don't think so. Because okay. Johnny finds out about the chloroquine and they administer that to everybody. All right. It, the, I've just seen like clips of like the weird coincidences, like an abridged episode you can watch on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because he's like trying to use his visions, but he doesn't know about science. <laughs> so he's just like writing words on the board that he saw. And it's like, is this helpful? <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. It's hard to relate to seeing the future, but it's easier to relate to not knowing about things that are important to the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, if you got sent back in time, like, way far, you could, like, tell people what an iPad is. You could, like, make one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, uh, I guess that does lead into the the, the question, which they they do answer uh, at least one person answers it in in this uh film and it's it's something that comes up in debates all the time if you could go back in time and kill hitler would you do it i think yeah. this movie does such a good job of tackling that because it's like it's so easy to say yes obviously but then like you have to go do it though and you probably won't make it out of there so and then still, like he's he, he does doubt himself. Like is what I'm I, what I'm seeing is you know is is it correct? You know, there's I don't know. Yeah, and, and is he willing to become a killer? Yeah. Because uh, I, I don't know if there actually are any movies about someone time traveling to go kill Hitler. If not, somebody please make that movie. It sounds great. Um, but this is the closest we have so far, and it is interesting. It I feel like it. Yeah, it's a little harder than you think. Also, I think it's usually a trick people are playing when they're like, would you go, if you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler, would you do it? I think it's a trick because either you say, yes, I'd kill a baby, which makes you look bad, or you say, no, I wouldn't kill Hitler, which makes you look bad. What, I think what, they're trying to trap you. What's, yeah, I think you're right. But I think what's great in this movie, too, is when uh, Johnny's having that scene where he's t- posing that question to his doctor, and his doctor's like, yes, I think you'd have to. <laughs> and I think is what he says. So it's like, oh, fuck. I gotta do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, do we want to cover any plot? How we want to do this? Let's let's yeah, let's talk about it. So the movie, uh, like John was saying, it kind of has like four-ish acts, and the first one uh, is our introduction to our characters. It's also the era when Johnny Smith, as played by Christopher Walken, has the worst hair. Yeah, it's not sticking uh, up yet. It's like uh, he's got like a crappy Beatles haircut. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's real bad. He just hasn't gone Super Saiyan yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got glasses like a nerd. I love it when guys get super uh, powers in movies and then don't need to wear their glasses anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is basically what happens to him. I uh, I just thought the movie does a really good job showing how like a, a somewhat regular guy could become... You know what? What he ultimately becomes, which is like he's wearing like a trench coat with his collar popped up, and his hair is crazy, and he walks with a cane, and he has psychic powers. It's like a, it's it's like a fairly believable path to that that ridiculous character. You wouldn't you wouldn't think that sort of thing is possible. They could show you a person becoming that, but I think it works. Yeah, I think it works too. I, I was gonna say, in a way, it kind of feels like to me now. I didn't think about this till right now. Like a precursor to, um, what's that movie called? In the Bruce Willis one, Unbreakable. Because uh, that's also <laughs> like, what if like this is a realistic, grounded superhero story? Well, Johnny Smith basically is a superhero. He's got superpowers, <laughs> but this is what it'd be like, you know, if it was real. So it's like pre-Unbreakable, but he can break. Oh yeah, his mind, and he does. <laughs> Um, so he goes on a date with, uh, Sarah, who's a fellow teacher at, at the school he works at. And, uh, I think this date is really funny because they seem to go to an abandoned amusement park <laughs> where there's just no one else there. It's to the point where when they get off the roller coaster, the guy, they include the guy being like, that's it. Like shut her down. <laughs> it's um, just off season, I guess. Yeah, I guess it it's cold. just off season. Yeah. I get it. They opened up special for them. Um, but the problem is Johnny's been getting this uh, this horrible headache while they're at the amusement park. And uh, he makes the critical decision to not sleep over at Sarah's place and try to drive home that night. And that, uh, that was a mistake because a storm comes up and a semi gets overturned. And he collides into it and ends up in a coma for five years. That's that's crazy like it's it's one of those kind of uh story techniques that usually comes off as pretty cheesy like i assume they use that a lot in soap operas but uh in this movie it really freaked me out like yeah you've been coming for five years fuck i don't know i think just how they handled it is good yeah and uh, the like the debilitating consequences of it too right where it's it's uh, he walks with canes not because he was injured in the accident but because he was laying in a bed for five years yeah and his uh girlfriend has moved on oh yeah so the castaway uh problem <laughs> <laughs> i think they're a little further along in castaway but yeah similar and uh and i think his his mom's become like broken or something too i didn't really understand what's going on with the mom but she seems to be sick and then she dies later it sounds like in the book she became like super religious though i'm not sure that they included much of that in the movie i don't recall anything Uh, like that in the movie 
but none of that matters. What does matter is that one day a nurse touches Johnny's hand and he has a vision of the nurse's daughter trapped in her home and it's on fire. And he's like, you got to go save her. And uh, it's pretty intense. Uh, it's not... We see that, like, in the vision, like, he is there in the fire, like, with the girl, uh, which is pretty cool. I love that technique where he's, like, a part of his visions like, as an observer. <laughs> That's cool. Also, it's crazy. I had seen this movie before, but for some reason, I, I guess because of the title, I was under the belief, like, oh, he touches people and sees, like, how they die. But no, that's not really it. It's a little looser defined than that. It's more of just, like, kind of visions of bad stuff that will happen associated to that person yeah and like usually it's associated with death but not always like the second vision we get is uh it's is a neurologist um who uh was a survivor of uh of the holocaust and uh he finds out uh through a vision of of his past that uh his neurologist mother is still alive and somewhere in america and he knows what her name is and where she lives so he's able to give the contact information uh over to him which is cool yeah i'm just trying to think like is that the only time though that he has a vision that isn't associated with death i guess it's kind of associated with the absence of death because he assumes that she's been dead all these years yeah, well, and everyone else is dying in that scene, too. Yeah, there is death in the like Nazis are driving around in tanks. Sure. Which, to me, I thought, oh, so they're, they're, they've got this scene. So there probably is going to be a scene later with, like, American Nazis. Because why else would they, like, bother to get all these tanks and stuff and they're not going to use them for two scenes? It's pretty weird to think about. Like, they shot this sequence just for, like, a cutaway. Yeah, like, I'd totally forgotten about it. And I was like, oh, yeah. There's a... <laughs> It's a random Nazi scene in this movie. Okay. Why not? Yeah. So it turns out that uh, Dr. Wiesak has the same uh, backstory as Magneto. But <laughs> it all worked out. Except he didn't get cool powers. That we know of. That we know of. That's true. The Shining could always come for anyone. Ah, oh, There's a lot of powers in the Stephen King universe. There's <laughs> shining powers, there's psychic powers, there's fire starter powers. Ooh, yeah. Um, there's green mile powers. Dude, somebody should put together a squad in the Stephen <laughs> King books. Uh, I don't think the timelines work out. But, you know, just people with the same powers. They don't have to be the same characters. You know, you get someone with green mile powers... Maybe the ones Johnny from Smith. the past can just get frozen like Captain America and <laughs> live in modern times. Or like you find out John Coffey from the Green Mile, like he was he didn't really get get killed. He like switched the body and now he's <laughs> he's back. <laughs> would, would Carrie be on the good guy's side or the bad guy's side? Ooh, that's tough. That is tough. Um I ah. I feel like she'd be on the bad guy side, but then at the end she'd be on the good guy side. She'd be like, mm. "What's that character from uh, Suicide Squad that sucks? That's the Cara Devilleier character." She's like, "Once it's just like Enchantress." Yeah, it's right, Enchantress. She's like Enchantress because Carrie's like OP. Uh, I think she'd be a great <laughs> villain from the fight. God, 
and I just want to make a list of all the Stephen King powers. There's, I didn't read that book, but there's that newer book of the Institute that's basically just X Men. So, gotta check that out too. Cool. I've been thinking about Suicide Squad because uh, I've been watching The Boys. I think I've already mentioned that on this podcast, which is embarrassing because yeah. the show's fine. <laughs> uh, but Karen Fukuhara's in that. Um, and I'm just amazed she would choose to do another superhero thing after being in Suicide Squad. But she's like, she actually gets to act in this, so it's better. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, she's the, the with the sword with the husband's yeah. ghost in it or something. Yeah, don't get stabbed by her soul by her sword. It'll like eat your soul or whatever they say. It's like she doesn't even get to say it. Weird. I was just doing a quick uh, since we we're talking about the Stephen King universe. Yeah, uh, since this movie takes place in Castle Rock, and there's that show Castle Rock, I wanted to see if yeah. Johnny Smith has showed up on Castle Rock, but I don't think he has yet. If I don't know if that show's still going, but I bet they're like, dude, we gotta get Johnny Smith on this show, <laughs> or just, want... just get Greg Stilson. Yeah, that works. Um, I, I know we're trying to get through the plot, but I just want to take a, a brief moment to talk about how great it is that christopher walken stars in this movie because i was reading um you know some people talk about the book and it seems like one of the downfalls of the book is that johnny smith is kind of just like a bland kind of everyman character um i think he's supposed to be a little younger too and i just think it's such inspired casting to do christopher walken in this role because like right off the bat the dude just looks haunted like he's got that gaunt face and those big eyes like I think it helps that he's in like in Deer Hunter too. Like he's just he he can play damaged so well. He's really good in this movie, and I really, I really love him in this movie. Yeah, such a it's good choice. Like I don't feel like he got to star in that many movies because he is kind of one of those actors who walked walked the line in between uh, like character actors and leading man. So, yeah. It's always fun to see him kind of do more in a film. And not be a villain, too. Like, he plays a lot of villains, so. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, And he hadn't been in a lot uh, at this point. I think Deer Hunter was definitely his most high-profile role. Um, and certainly far from his reinvention of himself in the late 90s as a funny, weird guy. <laughs> but in this, he gets to play a superhero. And everybody wants Johnny's superpowers. Uh, in particular, Tom Skerritt as Sheriff Tom Skerritt. I don't know what his name is. Uh, wants uh, Johnny to help him catch a killer. This is a, a pretty sure fun does. part of the movie that I kind of wish was a little longer. <laughs> yeah, especially because you know that's like the whole TV show. You you expect it to be a big part of the movie. Um, Always like seeing Tom Skerritt. I gotta admit, this sheriff character I feel like comes off as kind of a, I don't know, a bit of like a loser for me because like I feel like there's that part where he's on the news and he's like, you know, if just if anybody has anything, you know, it's like, it would really help. It's like, gosh, come on, you totally help us in this small I town. Mean, you can't figure- it's a small town police department. They're underfunded, I'm sure. He just have that like many he's resources. totally yeah. given up. Yeah, he's like, like, I just don't somebody know. Help. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, and you know, it's funny because in like another 
in any other movie, uh, when you have a serial killer in a small town, there's like a uh, yeah, the U.S. Marshals and the FBI, like there's like a whole squad that comes in to help find a serial killer. And here it does just seem like it is this one small town sheriff, like like doing it on the side because he can't even focus on it. Um, but yeah, it is it is pretty pathetic that he's just like, please help. I give up. I need help. Um, but yeah, there's a serial killer who has been killing uh, women in in Castle Rock, and uh, eventually Johnny is convinced to come and view uh, one of the crime scenes, and uh, he can't work out who the killer is from that. But coincidentally, one of the murders happens that night, and uh, and going and. F- interacting with the body makes him realize that it's actually one of the police officers. He's that one that John was talking about. The Nicholas Campbell, Nicholas Campbell guy. <laughs> Who could have been the star of this movie. Yeah, right. I'm like, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Then again, I guess it could have happened. It could have happened. I'm trying to think. Because, like, there's, it's, like, it's I, I was just, I was thinking about the movie, um, Firestarter, and aside from Drew Barrymore, the other star of that movie is Just Some Guy. So this very well could have starred <laughs> Just Some Guy. But thank God it starts Christopher Walken. Yeah. Um, Sometimes movies just star Jason Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just happens sometimes. Yeah, it just happens. And then you know what happens when that does happen? People just kind of forget about it. Like... <laughs> That Sleepers movie. It's like nobody remembers that Jason Patrick was like apparently the star of that movie. <laughs> Listen, I don't mind Jason Patrick. I don't want to come out. I don't want to have to apologize next week. Be like, we're so sorry, Jason Patrick. For, to to for be Duncan. fair, he is the most handsome boy in the Lost Boys. Like he's got that <laughs> he's going for him. Handsome, at least. He's a handsome boy, for sure. Um, I mean, speaking of people who could have been. Um, Brooke Adams plays Sarah in this and I recognized her from Days of Heaven uh, but I literally have no idea if she ever worked in any other movies besides those two she was Invasion of the Body Snatchers the 70s one alright the pointing Uh, one yeah, I, I she's definitely like an actress that kind of like she just looks so much like Margot Kidder that I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a different person. <laughs> <laughs> she's good though, but yeah, I, it's definitely someone like, oh, I haven't s- seen her since like the '80s. I'm sure she's you just been just, married to Tony Shalhoub yeah. since 1992. That's, that's wow, his, I mean, it's a good fun fact. That's one of those just really fun facts. Because <laughs> it's such she's a played life. four different characters on Monk. Wow. Okay. Now you're blowing my mind. Really? Yeah. Four. Four different Shit, characters, dude. She's a chameleon. Also says on our Wikipedia that she and Shalub had COVID Five different characters. in May. Aww. So I'm, well, I'm okay. sure they've so recovered they... them. Then in May. That's good. Also, one of her first roles, but she got cut from the movie, was Car Wash, written by Joel Schumacher, who we talked about last week. I always have to connect the movie we talked about to the previous week. Well, sure. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers stars Donald Sutherland. Uh, Yeah, I believe I mentioned it last week because Michael Chapman 
was the cinematographer, and he's also the cinematographer of Lost Boys. Michael Chapman can't be stopped. Except he was very recently stopped. Um, so yeah, this is the big uh, horror sequence of the movie, really, uh, when they track the serial killer down uh, to his house, where of course he lives with his mom, just like in Psycho. <laughs> just like every serial killer does. I was with their mom. Yeah. Except his mom's alive, but she's she knows what's up, um, and uh, he he knows the jig is up, and so like John mentioned, he um, gets some scissors out, which I guess oh. is his his method of killing. Well, we see the vision earlier that he killed yeah. the woman uh, with some scissors. Yeah, with some scissors. Um, okay, dude, he, th- this scene. Oh, yeah, go keep going. Keep describing it. <laughs> uh, I forget how he holds them. In, he, he puts them on the counter or something, but they're, the scissors are locked in place. And then he just he opens his mouth wide, and he just starts slowly lowering his head towards the scissors. And you just know it's going to be real bad, but he's going so slow. <sighs> Okay, yeah. This this scene is the whole reason I uh, saw this movie the first time because <laughs> you guys remember Bravo Channel's 100 scariest movie moments in like 2005. They did like a like a list. It's like a, yeah, I, a I do. Special. Yeah, I mean. and uh, they'd pick like one scene in particular to talk about in every movie, and they had the dead zone on yeah. their list, and they talked about this scene, and I hadn't seen it at that point. I'm like, holy shit, because it, what's so crazy about this scene. Is it's like how is that even an efficient way of killing yourself? <laughs> yeah, it seems it, it seems like the most inconvenient way to kill yourself imaginable. Put stabbing scissors somehow awkwardly into your face, like one through the roof of your mouth and like one through your jaw, and the force it would take, and it just like it's just like a one in fifty chance that it would actually work. <laughs> but that's but what the the great thing about this scene. Is he sits down in the bathtub and there's he's wearing that like thick leather jacket and there's like the crinkle of the leather as he puts his hands behind his back with the and then like you're saying he just goes so slow so slow and then the brilliance of the scene is how it, it cuts away so then we come back and we see he's just dead or dying from it, it you you never really can quite put together like <laughs> what did it do it just I guess it just went into his head somehow. Mm-hmm. And well, there's that, blood everywhere and I think that's what makes it so scary is you can't really wrap your mind around how that works because they don't show you you just kind of leave it to your imagination yeah. you just know it must have hurt real bad <laughs> yeah. fuck dude um, I, I imagine that's something probably directly from the novel because it just seems so insane that I feel like Stephen King had to have come up with that uh but they shoot it so well. Yeah. I mean, I, I can also believe it's a Cronenberg touch, though, because he was like, let's do something grotesque. We got one good shot for that. It'll be the serial killer committing suicide. Let's do something memorable and fucked up. I always wonder um, when there are scenes like this or like scenes where someone's like pointing like a bow and arrow, like a cock, uh, knocked bow and arrow at... Um, at somebody like is there what sort of precautions are put in place on the set to make sure that someone doesn't accidentally cut themselves or or hurt themselves worse than that 
Because, like, here, he gets pretty close to those scissors. And, like, I don't know, maybe that's an it's an angle thing. But I was wondering, like, maybe they're actually very dull. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're, like, I plastic. Hope, I hope it was all done safely. I mean, I don't, did you ever see Nicholas Campbell again? I don't <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, cool. So, uh, at this point, um, Johnny had been struggling with his celebrity and, uh, and, uh, and the fact that Sarah had moved on and, um, and it all gets a lot worse, uh, as this serial killer is caught because on the way out of the house, uh, the serial killer's mom shows up with a gun and shoots Johnny. Which just seems unfair. It's like the dude is still in the middle of recovery. He's still walking with a cane. He's not gotten over his coma. And now you're going to shoot him? Like he's not having a heart enough. Give this guy a break. <laughs> he has like one nice scene in the whole movie when he gets to spend that one uh, kind of afternoon and evening hanging out um, uh, with Brooke Adams' character. And then him and her yeah. and his dad have dinner. It's like the one nice moment, and everything else is just terrible for him. So here's here's an interesting thing about that. Um, so they have um, she uh, she cheats on her husband with him in this one scene. They finally uh, her and uh, and Johnny finally consummate their relationship, which they never got to do when they were younger. Um, and originally, they were going to pay that off at the end when Johnny was going to have a vision before he dies of Sarah giving birth to his child. So to me, that's interesting because that really compresses the timeline of this movie where like all this happens and she's still like not even showing that she's pregnant at the end of the film. So it's all happening in like a couple months, Mm. which to me, it felt like this movie took place over the course of like a decade at least. Did you guys get that vibe that it was like just a couple months? Um, it was hard. I mean, it all because it was all set in winter, so I assumed it was the same winter. <laughs> yeah, I think just because the weather remained the same throughout the whole movie, I assumed it was in a pretty, you know, short timeline of yeah, huh. a few months sounds about right to me. All right, well, there you go. I just thought, you know, getting shot and going through physical therapy again was, like, a long process. It probably is, but I guess I just didn't think about it. <laughs> also, it's just, like, how long can you possibly be uh, running for Senate? It's got it's to be, at, like, six months. <laughs> I guess I didn't even pay attention to the result. It's always the same campaign. I could have... You could have told me he was running for, you know, mayor, and then he was running for the house, and then he's running for the Senate. I don't believe because he he does run for those different positions throughout the book, right? Doesn't he like work his way up, kind of? Like, he yeah, he works his way up from killing dogs to <laughs> trying to be the president. mayor. <laughs> Jeez. Um. Oh yeah, and I had a note here that this is uh, still shot in Canada, but this is like a very American movie, which is a little bit unusual for Cronenberg at this point. No, felt a little Canadian to me, I guess, just because the vibe of it seemed a little yeah. similar to The Brood, which I watched recently, which was a, a, a more Canadian <laughs> Cronenberg movie. 
that just had like a similar vibe of just like lots of snow and like you know men in their 30s and 40s wearing lots of cardigan sweaters but also being very <laughs> afraid of the things happening around them also tom scarrett is just too polite in this movie you know yeah <laughs> he's like you know you know if, if you have the time to help me catch this killer that'd, that'd be nice but you know, it's okay if you don't <laughs> that's a, a canadian touch <laughs> that character that's my take um, so Johnny uh, decides to uh, hide from the uh, the spotlight. Uh, he uh, stops working with detectives. He moves out of town, or maybe just to another part of town. It's hard to tell. I don't know, uh, but it seems like people are leaving him alone now, and he starts um, tutoring again. And uh, he gets hired by uh, a, a wealthy man named uh, Roger Stewart to tutor his uh, his son Chris. And um, Chris instantly bonds with uh, Johnny, and they have a, uh, a good relationship until uh, one day, uh, while realizing oh so it's so sarah and her husband come by campaigning for uh for stilson and this gives uh johnny a a, like a sort of mini panic attack and he accidentally uh touches chris uh and he has a vision of chris and his whole hockey team uh drowning during a a hockey practice which again is like i guess another canadian Canadian, (laughs) (laughs) dying in a hockey accident it's a pretty chilling vision because it seems like the kids are dead as they're going into the water. Like they just they don't fight at all. They just like sink to the bottom and are dead. Uh, it's pretty freaky. The ice is gonna break. <laughs> Best line in the movie. I just it, for some reason it feels like it's a classic line to me. I love it. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that is the case because that's what I made my whole letterbox review. <laughs> <laughs> Cause doesn't he like break something after it? Cause he's like so mad. He's like, you gotta listen to me. I thought yeah, he like smashed he something. He like whips something with his cane, like a lamp or a pot or something. It's like that scene in Batman where Michael Keaton's like, you know, let's get nuts, and then like breaks shit with a cane. That's <laughs> just a good thing to do in movies. <laughs> Love that. Also, I want to take a moment to uh, compliment the performance of Anthony Zerby. I think he's really good in this movie as Rod- Roger Stewart. Because, like, I was looking up his career, and I'm like, he's so good. He must have had all sorts of, like, classic roles. And he's had been in, like, some of the crappiest, like, stuff. Like, he was, like, the bad – like, it's not a bad movie, but he's, like, the bad guy in Omega Man, which is kind of a silly movie. And he was in Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> And it's just like this guy should have been getting like classic roles because he's he's so good. He's like one of the lepers in Papillon, uh, playing a lot of guys with like gross faces and stuff. So it was, it was nice to see him play like a, a nice meaty character, but like a real person too. Sean, you'll be happy to know that he was in Star Trek Insurrection. Nice. And also the Matrix Reloaded. Really? He's still Matrix alive. Reloaded, huh? As Counselor Heyman. So probably one of the forgettable Zion people then. Yeah, I think so. But he's really good in this. One of his uh, better roles. Um, the connection I made to him 
which this is not interesting. Yeah. It's Anthony Zerby as the bad guy in James Bond film License to Kill. Mm. And the music to that movie was done by Michael Kamen, who also did the music to The Dead Zone. Ah, oh, yeah. You know, I like the score to this movie. Um, I like Michael Kamen's score. I was a little disappointed going in seeing that it wasn't... Um, Howard Shore. Yeah, because... <laughs> I was looking up Cronenberg's filmography, and it does have like um, a part of it on his Wikipedia that lists like collaborators. And from 1979 to 2014, which is his most recent movie, this is the only movie where he didn't work with Howard Shore. Like that's his wow. go-to guy. All those movies they've collaborated, I think, like 19 times. Like it's his go-to guy. So I was a little disappointed, but I thought Michael Kamen knocked it out. Um, this, is, this movie is interesting because it feels like a lot of like very talented, successful people came together to make it, but never worked together again. Really, <laughs> and Deborah Hill and Dino De Laurentiis and yeah, Michael Caine and David Cronenberg. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it just wasn't as big of a hit as they wanted it to be, but. It seems like everybody yeah. is taking a break from the more sensational films they were making to do something <laughs> low-key, like The Dead Zone. Yeah, you know what? Even Michael Kamen, he, they're, they're not really, like, they're not memorable scores in that I have a hard time thinking of how they go, but they're definitely movies that I'm like, I remember thinking the music to that is good. Like, he did, um, like, the first X-Men movie and Mr. Holland's Opus, uh, he did uh, Brazil. He did Band of Brothers. Like, there's, there's like music where it's like, I bet if you played it for me, you'd be like, oh yeah, I recognize that. <laughs> you know, you know what stands out to me most in Michael Kamen's uh, filmography is that he uh, co-composed the Lethal Weapon score with Eric Clapton. So <laughs> I like to think he was responsible for all that saxophone. Because when I think Lethal Weapon, oh, I, I, yeah. I think like. And then guitar will be like, like these like sad, like kind of jazzy instruments. I'm like, hell yeah! So this this episode has so many impressions. John's now doing impressions of musical instruments. <laughs> Dude, you're trying to do the impression to the score to Lethal Weapon. It's I found from back to back episodes talking about saxophones. It's really hard to do an impression of a saxophone. It's way easier to do a trumpet. Yeah, it's just like, but saxophone's like lower, but not like really low, like a trombone. It's just like, I, I bet Michael Winslow does an excellent saxophone. Oh, for sure, he's a pro. If I ever meet him, I'm going to ask him if you can do saxophone. <laughs> Is uh, Police Academy on any of you guys' list of potential picks for the future? Um. I would say, yeah, uh, it is. Just because of the fact that, like, they made so many, there must have been something about it that yeah. people liked. They made seven of them. I've heard that despite how, like, commercial and TV-friendly the sequels are, the first one's actually pretty raunchy. Oh, I could believe it. That came out at the height of, like, raunchy comedies, you know, like your Porky's-type movies. So, I could believe it. Um, but yeah, back to the dead zone. Yeah. Great. So, uh, Johnny has that scary vision and he warns, uh, Chris's dad, the the rich guy we're talking about. Uh, 
And he's like, okay, we won't practice. But then he's like, I was just saying that. Let's go practice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Chris refuses to go. And we don't for sure see what happens. But uh, Johnny calls in and Chris answers the phone. And Roger is sitting looking like very sullen by the fire. Which I guess is a clue that he just killed a bunch of kids. That's the end of that relationship and that episode in Johnny's really just tragic life. I, I we think didn't it's talk also about how his mom died. Yeah, I think it's just interesting that like even when he tries to use his power, like it never quite has a happy ending. Like people don't believe him, or you know, there's always a toll. Yeah, that's like, true. They save the little girl, but then after that, it's always you know uh, he he tells his doctor that his mom's still alive, but. He feels like he it's too he's too old and too much time has passed. He can't have that relationship in his life. And then he tracks down the serial killer, but right after he's just killed again and he gets shot for it. And then he tries to save those kids and he pays and most of those kids die too. Yeah, that's I didn't even think about that. <laughs> what a bummer this power is. <laughs> um but his most haunting vision happens uh when he uh uh, at this point, he's met Stilson briefly before, but he goes to a Stilson rally because uh, he knows that Sarah supports him, and uh, and she shakes his hand, and she has he has this great vision. So we should say Greg Stilson is played by Martin Sheen, the president from the West. Wing. It's so cool to see him play this part when he's played like such a a good president to play like the evilest potential president <laughs> ever. Um. So in this dark future that we see, uh, he's at apparently Camp David uh, in his pajamas. Uh, and they pull up this weird laptop, which <laughs> it doesn't even, it just it just looks like a game. It's just like light up buttons. <laughs> um, but I think it's supposed to be like the nuclear football. And, uh, and it's uh, Martin Sheen being like, I had a vision. We got to do it. And uh, he seems to be sparking like a, a nuclear holocaust uh, sometime in the future. And everyone's just like, my God, help us. So that's great. That's one of those fun things that you can just see and forget about. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe uh, everyone will be okay. <laughs> um, and so this, uh, this gets Johnny obsessed with the idea of how, how can he stop uh, Stilson. Uh, as far as like the Donald Trump parallels, like yes, we see that Stilson is um, sort of like a, a political outsider. I think I think they say he's a third party candidate, um, so he's not welcomed in the in the two major parties. Uh, he also has an iconic hat, which is just a weird coincidence. Except for him, it's not just like a color of a hat; it's a it's a hard hat. Yeah. But you see that him and his supporters wear hard hats. Um, but he uh, he's popular with uh, the working folk, common people, uh, for his his message about you know you've been left behind and we've got to take our country back and it's a it's a it's a populist message. Uh, I mean, and this is not a movie that's beating around the bush. It's already had, it's already shown Nazis before, so it knows what it's doing with this guy. Um, do you think this would have seemed a less believable character maybe five years ago? <laughs> mm. 
No, I mean, there's politicians throughout all time have been... You've had those snake oil salesman kinds of politicians. I think they've always been around. I could buy it. It is funny, though. I was thinking about, like, I did have to have that brief moment. I was like, who's... Who would be the worst president, Donald Trump or Greg Stilson? Like, obviously, Greg Stilson's the worst president, but I it did take me a minute. I had to weigh those options in my head. I mean, you could say that uh, <laughs> if Johnny Smith grabbed Donald Trump's arm, he would like see a vision of a scientist talking to Trump in January 2020, being like, this disease is going to kill hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, shit. And oh, Trump's just shit. like, okay, but let's... Not really. Let's not let this get out. Like let's let's keep it on the down low. <laughs> oh, you'd have to kill him too. Yeah. Fuck, dude. Wow. That's a downer. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so he decides he has that conversation we alluded to earlier with uh with dr uh wyzak about uh would you kill hitler and he's like you gotta kill hitler so um what johnny decides to do is you know a mature and candidate type situation go to a rally bring a sniper rifle shoot that guy um but as the as the moment happens uh, and this, this to me was such a pleasant surprise. The way this all happens, uh, Sarah gets brought up on the stage. I guess just because she brought her baby. Um, I, I, there's no way he knew he needed a meat shield. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this causes uh, Johnny to hesitate when he goes to line up the shot, uh, and he misses. And Stilson grabs. Uh, Sarah's baby and uses it as cover and so Johnny doesn't actually need to kill Stilson to destroy his political career the image of him (laughs) using a baby as a human shield will do that all on its own I think that's so clever it would have been so easy for him to just shoot him and then like oh there you go Uh go or just like or just like try to shoot him and get shot you know, it could have just been a, like a dark ending too, but they found a middle path that's pretty satisfying. Um, Johnny gets shot by uh, the Stilson's bodyguard, um, and he falls off the balcony, and uh, and he's dying, but he's able to to grab Stilson's hand one last time and see that <laughs> a depressed Stilson's going to shoot himself ahead later. Yeah, no, I. I can't confirm this, but I've been kind of like browsing some stuff about the book. I've been browsing the book synopsis on Wikipedia. I don't know Uh that that last vision of Greg Stilson killing himself happens in the book. And if that's the case, I think that is um, a great addition to Mm -hmm. the story. It's incredibly chilling because then you kind of cut back and you see Greg Stilson has like this kind of scared look in his face. And you're like, oh, shit, he doesn't he might not even know yet that he's going to consider this later. Uh, so that's pretty that's pretty chilling, man. Also, earlier I said I'd look up uh, the Castle Rock Killer. As far as I can tell in the book, I think he just slashes his throat. I don't know if he does the scissor thing. So I think that might also be an addition in the movie. So huh. some, some pretty freaky <laughs> ideas in the writer's room here between uh, Bohm and Hill and Cronenberg. Uh, just wanted to point that out. But yeah, Greg Stilson's fucked. Yeah, so that's that's uh, that's great, and it gives us hope that 
eventually a populist uh, politician can eventually be undone by something so hilariously embarrassing no one can defend it so we just gotta hope for that even though we already got that a few times and it hasn't worked it's just not been big enough yet I guess Uh, yeah well maybe like 50 things that are almost as bad we'll we'll seal the deal Um, who knows in aggregate Yeah. yeah Hey, you know what? Maybe gathering all the major Republicans and giving them COVID will be... I mean, that's... <laughs> Maybe that'll be one of those those classic boners. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't wasn't a great idea. Um, and that, that that's the story of the death zone. Um, I do have one goof. I just wanted to read it out loud because reading it quietly to myself during this podcast i couldn't understand the sentence okay okay so we'll I, just need, I need to just read it out loud okay. to make sure it makes sense okay when stilson presses the red button it begins to blink on and off with a synchronized audible tone the next time you see the button the tone is still perfectly synchronized with the red light but it remained so only by speeding up significantly when the button was out of view I think you got to be some kind of button expert to understand that one. I see that the button nerds have gotten a hold of the IMDb goof section. Yeah. Jeez. That's a tough one. (laughs) Why is that the one that you wanted to... I guess because it is like... It's like a it's a real noodle scratcher. (laughs) What the fuck did I just read? I just read it out loud. I don't know what it said. Um... (sighs) Something about they, okay, they had to speed up the sound of the button press. the The button press sound got sped up. I think is what it's trying to say. Okay. <laughs> uh, one out of five found this interesting. It's only it's one of only eleven goofs on the Dead Zone page. So they pretty much got everything right. They got it perfect, man. Sometimes you just nail it. I wouldn't call this movie perfect, but I did. I think I rated this four stars on my letterbox. I, I really had a good time with this one. Yeah, it's not a super sensational, like in your face movie. It's pretty low key. But I think for me, it has just enough. Like, I think it has a chilling ending and it has just enough memorable sequences to kind of be like, okay, this is kind of a an interesting uh, concept and approach. I like this. Because I can, I can imagine a way more B-movie version of this movie existing, but I feel like we got the classier version. I f- <laughs> like the Stephen King totally. version sounds a lot worse. So. <laughs> the, the, the Stephen King script, not the book. Yeah. The slasher thing he was going to do. Uh, so yeah. I'm a fan. I like it. Well, that's pretty much our uh, our take on The Dead Zone, unless, John, do you have one of your classic bits to lay on us today? Oh, of course. I, I have a villain's wiki uh, for Greg Stilson. This is uh, nice. John's Rogues Gallery. Test your bite. Test your bite. Okay, so guys, Greg Stilson, he is an evildoer. Yeah, he is. Full name, Gregory Amos Stilson. What? Amos. Like you're amassing wealth? A-M-M-A-S. 
a mass, a mess of a person, if you ask me. Alias, Greg Stilson, Mr. Stilson. Origin, Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Occupation. So this, uh, just so you guys know, this looks like it's combined the uh, the book and the movie a little bit. Occupation, and U.S. senatorial show? candidate, politician, elected mayor of Castle Rock, and terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That's quite the resume. Power slash skills. Very high intelligence. <laughs> Charisma. And political power. Hobby, being beloved by the townspeople and gaining more power. Goals, kill Johnny Smith and to become the new U.S. president so he will be able to order a nuclear strike against Russia. That's the that's why he wants to be president. I didn't know that. I thought he just wanted the power. That's his goal. <laughs> Crimes. Child endangerment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's the end there. That That's baby's in danger. It's a bad one. And type of villain, you guys. I'm going to go with power-hungry politician. <sighs> That's pretty good. I'm going to go with... Uh... How could it not have politician? I just it, that's it's got to have politician. Uh, you so. never know these; they're usually not what actually makes sense. How about um, twisted politician? <laughs> Hell yeah, he is a charismatic egotist. Mm, sure. <laughs> So, Sounds like someone else I can think of. I'm guessing anytime there's a character who's also in a book, there's a chance that the person who wrote the villain's wiki may have read a book once, so they're maybe it's a little smarter. So you gotta like, mm. I would keep that in mind next time if it's a book character that like <laughs> someone might have put a little more effort. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I could imagine somebody just writing bad politician if this was just a movie, but since it's also a book, they try to act all smart. They got Uh, us. One more thing I wanted to bring up uh, before we move on to the next pick. Did you guys know that in the early 90s, Christopher Walken did an SNL sketch um, where he played a guy working in an office who had the same power, but (gasps) his psychic ability is like really like mundane, trivial stuff? (laughs) The sketch is called Ed Glosser Trivial Psychic. Um. (laughs) I could do one little joke from it. I, I, I won't go too heavy on the voice because then it'll just be incomprehensible. Um, but he grabs someone's hand, a female employee, and she goes, are you all right? And he goes, you have a daughter. He says, yes. She's at home with the housekeeper. Yes. The housekeeper just waxed the kitchen floor. Yes. Your daughter's running on the wet kitchen floor. And she's leaving footprints. Yeah. The housekeeper's annoyed. She has to do that part of the floor over again. <laughs> really? It's not too late. You, you can tell her. You can save her. Like, that's an example <laughs> of the sketch. It's just, like, lame stuff like that over and over again. And, you know, this is with, like, people. With, like It's got, like, Rob Schneider in it and, like, Adam Sandler. It's a pretty good sketch. Because then they ask him, how did you get this power? And he just goes, I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty lame. <laughs> 
Uh, love Christopher Walken. Uh, anyway, Colin, it's your turn to make another pick. Okay. What do you got? So my pick is a, uh, I believe it's a horror movie. I think it's kind of a thriller slash horror movie. Uh, I've yeah. been meaning to watch it for multiple years <laughs> because I own the Blu-ray yeah. but have not watched it. Uh, and I, I wanted to watch it after watching a uh, a TV show that was kind of based off of it uh it is whatever happened to baby jane uh the betty davis joan crawford movie from the 60s that uh so we're leaving the 80s yeah. huh i mean we did three we got our trilogy of 80s <laughs> movies I, I figure it's it's about time we move to a to a different decade i had this on Going my in? uh my watch list for my scarecrow video uh, psychotronic challenge, but it's way later. You're really screwing things up, Colin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Listen, when was I supposed? Cause yes, for anyone who doesn't know, what I'm talking about Scarecrow Video in Seattle. Uh, puts out a cool list every year of like uh, uh, every day has a theme of a kind of movie you can watch for a kind of horror or sci-fi or whatever you want to do. Um, and there was one day that was like, pick a movie with a wheelchair, and I was like, well, I know what I'm going to pick because I haven't seen it. Um, that was another reason I chose what? it is it's just really hard <laughs> to find a horror movie that John hasn't seen and because yeah. it is October actually actually yeah this might this might line up <laughs> okay let's see our next that podcast would come out like somewhere around like the 16th or 17th right and we'd yeah okay so I would mm-hmm. have had to watch it on the 15th um, which is a Thursday. I'll just lie. Yeah, no one cares. <laughs> I, I won't. Tell. That, that's close enough. Yeah, it was, it was either this or watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for like the twentieth time. So mm-hmm. I'll pick. I'll have this for my Hell on Four Wheels <laughs> pick. So I'm looking for. I'm looking well, forward to that. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait to find out what happened to Baby Jane next week. Um, and if you want to find out what's been happening on our blog, then you should go to mildlypleased.com. That's where we've been doing our Shocktober posts, where we've been writing about uh, TV specials and Halloween episodes uh, that have come out throughout all of history. We're going through them chronologically, though, so we're probably in like the the 80s or 90s also television has only existed since the 50s so all of history is a little misleading well (laughs) but it's true all of all of of the history in which tv has existed so i guess you're not lying yeah that's people know i never lie john's a straight shooter we all know this Um, you can find more podcasts we did uh, by subscribing to the feed that you probably found this one in by searching uh, Miley Please on iTunes or any of the other podcast things uh, and I forgot we like, do quotes at the end so I don't have one I'll see you and talk to you next time sucker <laughs> <laughs> the ice is gonna break yeah. <laughs>